You're listening to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast with your host, Vanessa Weisbrod. Welcome to the Gluten-Free Guide Podcast. I'm Vanessa Weisbrod coming to you from the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National Health System. And I want to start out by welcoming my co-host for today, Sandy Werness from the Global Autoimmune Institute. Welcome, Sandy. Hey, Vanessa. Hey, Sheena. Today's podcast is an important one. We know that celiac, the Celiac Disease Program at Children's National is unique and that we offer a multidisciplinary clinic with the opportunity for patients to meet with practitioners from multiple fields, including psychology. However, some of the connections between celiac and these other fields, like psychology, are less known. For instance, were you aware that there's actually a specific field called psychogastroenterology? To explain the intricacies of this unique field, we've got Dr. Shana Coburn from our Celiac Disease Program at Children's National in the studio with us today. Dr. Coburn runs the psychological services for our program, which includes offering consultations and empirically supported interventions to help families navigate the challenges of diagnosis and management of the gluten-free diet. She also lives a gluten-free lifestyle herself, so she's very equipped to help navigate this topic. So, welcome, Dr. Coburn. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, I want to start out just by asking you, what is psychogastroenterology? Um, The first time I heard it tossed around was at the Digestive Disease Week conference, and at first, the term really sounded to me like they were going to hypnotize the body into going to the bathroom less or something ridiculous like that. So, just tell us what it means. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's it's a long word, and it brings up all kinds of ideas. Um, so gy- gy- psychogastroenterology is a relatively new field of study and new field for treatment, and it focuses on the regulation between the brain and the gut. So it was initially to kind of developed after psychologists and gastroenterologists discovered that um, relaxation and hypnotherapy made a big difference for people who had irritable bowel syndrome or IBS. Um, but this sort of hypnotherapy is nothing like that dramatic stage hypnosis that you might have been thinking of or that others might have seen before. So psychogastroenterology is based on the idea of encouraging healthy communication between the gut and the brain um, by way of the nervous system. So it's sort of a feedback loop in our bodies. Sometimes people call it the gut-brain axis. And so if we can intervene on our gut health, our nervous system, or mental health, it could uh, improve any other parts of that gut-brain axis. Dana, is that uh, hypnotherapy similar to or uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy? That's a really good question. Um, and I know that we, maybe we were thinking about talking about that further. Um, so in a nutshell, you know, so, you know, Vanessa made the joke about hypnosis. The funny thing is that, yeah, there is this approach called gut-directed hypnotherapy. And it's different than CBT, so I can tell you kind of a little about that too. So gut-directed hypnotherapy has mostly been used in adults so far, um, but it's being explored with kids too. And it's a promising way to kind of help improve symptoms for many people who have um, especially pain in their gut and other kind of distress related to their digestion. We call that sometimes visceral hypersensitivity. And it happens a lot in people who have IBS and acid reflux and and some other digestive conditions where they're really um, feeling a lot of pain and overly aware of the sensations in their gut. And that can really lead to a lot of distress. So hypnotherapy is nothing like the dramatic hypnosis, like I mentioned. 
Um, it doesn't involve controlling people or making them do silly things. It focuses more on relaxation and visualization strategies um, and the idea is to help improve miscommunication that we think is going on between the brain and the gut. So um, it really tries to help people focus on ways to relax their body and improve the effect of stress and pain in their body. And it um, has this regulatory effect. So in kids, we're not totally sure if it's a, a useful tool, but across ages, there are a lot of different techniques, um, including CBT, which I can tell you a little more about if you're interested, but that's kind of a different approach. That would be great. Let, let's hear about CBT. Okay. So cognitive behavioral therapy is CBT, you know, we refer to it as CBT for short. And that is another very effective way to treat people um, for a number of mental health concerns, so anxiety and depression and things like that. Um, and we also can use CBT for people who have digestive challenges and discomfort and things like that. So CBT really focuses on the idea that there's, again, kind of this cycle or connection between things, but rather than focusing on brain and gut, it does a little more focusing on the combination of our thoughts, our emotions, and our actions. And what we think with CBT is that somewhere in that cycle of what we think about, how we feel, and what we do, that something is not going so well. Something's maybe not as effective as we would like to help someone stay feeling good. And so if we can find a way to change a little bit um, of their thoughts or their emotions, that that will help them behave better um, and experience less distress overall. So we, we do things like explore negative thoughts that they might have um, and try to think of more realistic or more helpful ways to think about their situation. And we, we do build in some of the kind of relaxation strategies to help people manage stress and anxiety in their body as well as in their mind. So CBT can be really effective for a lot of things. Do you think that the stress and anxiety is more, a re for patients with celiac disease, more a result of the symptoms that they're having at, when they're exposed to gluten or more of the anxi having anxiety thinking about them having symptoms if they are exposed? It really depends on the person, and I think it can be either one of those or both. So again, because there's like that cycle, it depends on the person, but certainly what we've seen a lot of in our clinic with, with families is that um, many people do have distress about feeling sick before they even get diagnosed. So it, it can be really upsetting to have, you know, whatever their symptoms might be, whether it's um, stomach aches or you know, diarrhea or nausea or, you know, some of our less typical, but now very common symptoms with fatigue or joint pain or other things like that. And so that alone, just feeling sick can cause a lot of anxiety and distress um, and depression if we're feeling really hopeless and helpless about it. And then on, on top of that, we think probably the irritation, inflammation in the gut could be affecting the way our brain and our nervous system are working. But then of course, once they get diagnosed, then we're dealing with a whole new stress of coping with the chronic illness and all of that fear of potential exposures and the grief of experiencing a diagnosis. So it could be really all kinds of different factors along the continuum. Um, and so that's where we can kind of address what we find to be upsetting people the most and, and try to focus on effective coping strategies for what's troubling them the most. And sometimes it does kind of 
generalize to other other challenges they're dealing with too. So this may be totally derailing us from the topic that we started out talking about today, but as it's the middle of summer and other parents might experience this too, I feel it's important to bring it up as it was quite an anxiety provoking hour of my life this week. So we we were at the beach with our kids and we stopped to get ice cream as many people do in the summer. And our younger son has a dairy allergy. So we, we typically go for the um, the ices or the, the um, sorbets. Well, they had a whole slew of different Italian ices. And of course they both picked both bubblegum, which came in a blue, like a bright blue um, color. And the next day, my son with celiac disease had green diarrhea. And I was like, oh my God, like what is wrong with him? And he was complaining that his stomach hurt. And I'm like, oh my God, he has like a bacterial infection in his gut. Because his the it wasn't like blue diarrhea. It was like green diarrhea, like a totally different color. And I was panicking that, you know, something was really, really wrong with him. And of course I called Dr. Kersner and he's like, what did he eat yesterday? And of course, the second I said he had the Italian ice, he's like, what color was it? And I was like, blue. And so I, I learned that, you know, how much the food we eat really does change the color of our bowel movements. And that, you know, it's not always something terribly awful, but that, you know, when you see something off, it might not be something terrible, but it might just be that you ate something different that day. So and you have to be careful. You have to keep your eye on it. So you have to figure it out every time. It's one of the stresses really. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. And that happens to people a lot with beets. Yeah. So or something where you eat them, it's natural. You don't think about the fact that there could be kind of food dye coming in. And even though it's natural dye, it can have that effect on not just, you know, like some people talk about their pee changing color, but absolutely your poop can be a different color. And that oftentimes turns it red, which is particularly scary for lots of people. So yeah. absolutely. I mean, what comes out is very scary <laughs> if we are already a little bit on alert about what is going in and what could be making them feel sick. Absolutely. So Shana or Dr. Coburn, how does a parent of a child with a GI issue know or recognize when the child needs a psychologist? Well, so psychologists can help with managing physical symptoms from a GI condition and also emotional or behavioral symptoms. So, you know, to decide whether a child needs a psychologist, we would really want to think about how much a child's life is being impacted by his or her symptoms. And these can take on all kinds of forms. So this can be physical, behavioral, or emotional. And if they have trouble getting up and going about their day because of their GI symptoms or their emotional symptoms, that's when a psychologist can really help them. Um, We could sort of help them learn ways to alleviate the experience of pain and even reduce some of that experience of pain, like I mentioned. Another common issue is that a child might be feeling anxious or depressed about their GI condition for some of the reasons we were just talking about. So if they're withdrawing from their life or avoiding situations that scare them, a psychologist might be able to help them gain motivation to face their fears and get back into their routine. Um, And then they can also help families advocate for making arrangements for them, like at school and other settings, so that it can be a little bit less stressful. So um, helping to make backup plans for sick days or reactions Um, And maybe trying to help things, you know, request arrangements like special bathroom privileges. Um, And the other really important thing is that we don't want to forget that kids with GI conditions and 
adults with GI conditions might also have other mental health challenges, just like anybody else. It might not be very tightly tied to their digestive system, you know, situation. And so sometimes we just need to treat mood, attention, or behavior problems, whether or not it's clearly linked to their medical condition. So Dr. Comer, that's great. Um, and uh, are there other ways or other uh, indicators that also you look at so as to make a decision or determine uh, whether the person needs uh, intervention or help uh, with their reactions to their diagnosis and their situation versus just simply um, their, the way that they are coping with their normal stress and, and uh, uh, in reaction to their diagnosis? Yeah, you know, I think that this question's a really important one. So the question of how do we know when someone is just dealing with a lot and it's stressful and they're kind of actively working through it versus when it's really not going so well and they need some extra help. Um, so everyone express, you know, has some experience um, in their life that's going to be stressful and most people cope with it just fine. And that includes a diagnosis of a chronic condition of some sort. So whether it's, you know, IBS or celiac disease or, you know, something else, um, most people find it's challenging and it's normal to feel worried, stressed, concerned, a little bit more likely to kind of back up a little bit into their world, you know, shrink their world a little bit for a while just to kind of regroup and figure out what to do. That's all to be expected. Um, the time to really think about intervening and getting some extra help comes up when symptoms or, or experience, experiences are really affecting life negatively without getting any better. And so we look at how bad symptoms are, which are kind of the intensity, as well as how often they happen or more like the frequency. So either one of those on their own, if it's pretty high, might be reason for us to, to try to get them some help. Um, especially if both are high, then that's even more urgent that we would want to try to get help. So for example, um, if a child is having maybe a bit of a stomach ache before school each day, and that's been going on for a week or two at the beginning of the school year, you know, but they still manage to get to school successfully and they kind of forget about it within 30 minutes of getting there and are able to go about their day for the rest of the day, then that's, um, you know, that child might be having some GI distress that might be linked to a little bit of stress or anxiety, but it's not preventing that child from going to school and going about the rest of their day. And it probably is likely that it will get better the longer they keep going to school as they settle into the school year. But on the other hand, if a child um, refuses to go to school or feels too distracted at school because they've got a stomach ache and they're not able to focus on their classwork um, or have to go to the nurse a lot, that might be a time to pursue some help from a psychologist to try to learn more effective coping strategies. And the big thing, the big thing too, I'll add is that if, if someone's questioning it, if you're really not sure whether you need a little extra help or if this is normal coping with something, you can always reach out to a therapist. Pretty much any mental health professional is going to be able to offer some kind of initial consultation to help you decide if it's a good time to start therapy. And you're never locked into therapy, you know, just by picking up the phone or even coming in for a meeting. So it's something where if you're not sure, it doesn't hurt to go and ask. Dr. Coburn, I think you really uh, raised an important point because um, that differentiation is tricky. Um, 
So in our, in my child's uh, case, for example, my child was um, treated by the doctors as though her her pain was psychological, uh, which delayed her diagnosis, frankly, for years. Uh, and then um, as a result, though, uh, she learned to mask her symptoms. She it didn't control the um, distraction and the physical problems she did have, uh, but she learned that she had to endure this on her own with no help because there was no hope for her to change that pain. So um, that's the, it makes the role of not only the physician but the psychologist extremely important in the process because um, otherwise uh, the child will simply really be left to his or her own devices and coping mechanisms which unfortunately can't be complete because if they are spending a tremendous amount of their psychic energy um, in um, controlling um, that pain that is um, faking being well, uh, then they are not going to be able to be as an attentive in school or um, uh, or, or to function socially mm -hmm. in the way that other normal children can do because they're they're tied up um, in just simply um, pretending that they are not in pain. Yeah. So uh, so I think that's really important. And then the when you mentioned um, extra um, or permission for going to the bathroom, um, I would just like to uh, note that that's um, you know it sounds like a really small point. But this is a very, this was a very very important uh, problem for my for my child, um, and in fact, um, you know, she was punished in school, and um, she felt very uh, ashamed and different because of this problem that she needed to you know use the bathroom more regularly. So when we're talking about these different little these issues that just seem like small points. They actually make a huge, tremendous difference in the life of a child and and of a person. This actually happened to me yesterday with my younger son at summer camp. He had yeah. he doesn't have celiac; he has mast cell activation syndrome, which is different. But um, same idea. He was fed um, waffles for lunch that were made using milk, and he has um, a dairy allergy, and he got diarrhea. And he asked, he told his teacher he needed to go to the bathroom. And she said just a moment, she was trying to finish something up with another child. And he said that he pulled on her arm and he said, I have to go to the bathroom. And she said, just a minute. And he then had diarrhea all over the classroom, all over himself Aww. and on the floor. Um, Poor kid. And, you know, when the teacher told me about it afterwards, I was like, so he asked to go and she said, yeah, I just, I needed to finish what I was doing. And I said, and then how long was it? And she was like, maybe three minutes. Yeah. But for a three-year-old, when yeah. they have to go that bad, it's, um, they can't wait three minutes, you know? No. Not but diarrhea, you can't, I mean, no. you're not in control of it. So, so you right. know, it's interesting because, you know, his, his thought was, I don't want to go to camp. But, you know, eventually he did. He did go today. Um, but it, it took us talking to when we we sent a pull up and he he didn't end up wearing the pull up, but I had it there in case he wanted it. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it, it does. 
even for a really little kid who doesn't quite understand all of the like social stigmas and what that meant, um, he still was embarrassed by it. Absolutely. That's such a terrible experience. And unfortunately it's, yeah, it's really common with kids who have, you know, these food sensitivities and allergies and, and so especially at something like camp where it's maybe not their day in day out routine the rest of the year, it's hard to help everyone understand what they need. But it's true, you know, even a tiny little thing like just free will, you know, free free ability to go to the bathroom or, or something like that can really be the difference between a, a child being able to feel comfortable going to school and not. Um, and so I think that that is really important for sure. And it, I, I think, Sandy, your point that some of these things seem small, but they're so important and meaningful to the person is very true. And it's a personal thing. We don't know exactly what matters the most. And so these little changes we can make sometimes make a really big difference. Um, and you're right, too, about the, the, the burden of trying to act like you're okay. That is something that we, we do see when we, when we kind of try to study the experience of people who have chronic conditions. It is exhausting and it is mentally taxing and it affects their cognitive ability, it, it, it causes significant fatigue, um, let alone, you know, the, the risk for depression and anxiety. So yeah, a big job that I feel we have, it, especially as psychologists, is to try to just help people see that a lot of what they're going through is normal and that this is, they're not alone. And this is something that we can work through and hopefully teach others about so that there's less stigma connected to it. Absolutely. Dr. Coburn, I I would uh, on that same thread. Um, I once spoke with a psychologist who um, explained something really important to me as a mother to understand uh, my my child's feelings um, and the way she had developed. Uh, and she said that uh, when children have chronic pain, which was the case with my daughter, uh, they develop a deep grief within themselves. And this grief then creates and contributes to um, anxiety and possibly depression, probably depression. Mm -hmm. I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about that or what your experience is with regard to that very deep grief um, relating to chronic pain. Because celiac disease causes chronic pain, so um, not always, always, but uh, it certainly is a very common uh, symptom um, for celiac disease children and people. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It, it's it's pretty well accepted in, in the world of psychology that pain really can certainly trigger feelings of grief and depression. Um, and that's where we have this amazing tool, which is, you know, some of these therapy approaches that can help people learn to both cope with the experience of pain and kind of reprocess it a little bit um, and also help their body release some of that stress and, and distress as a result of pain. So through deep breathing and relaxation and visual visualization and hypnotherapy and all kinds of different approaches that we have in our toolbox, we can target both the way we interpret pain signals and 
what we do with that information in our brain and in our, in our bodies, and also help kind of mitigate those negative effects that long-term pain can have on, in our bodies. So it's this kind of two-way street where we can attack it from two angles. Um, and, and so really pain can be reprocessed if we can reprogram our brain and our nervous system. It takes a lot of effort, but we can reprogram it so that there's less suffering as a result of pain experience. And that can really alleviate a lot of the distress that comes along with it. Oh, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. So now I want to change topics a little bit because, you know, we hear a lot of people are resistant to getting psychological help because of that stigma of, of mental health or, you know, seeing a therapist. So how can we help um, patients and families understand why psychologists are helpful and get past that stigma? Yeah, and this is so important to talk about because it is a real, a real problem. Um, <laughs> stigma of mental health and, and psychology can be a really unfortunate barrier to getting the help that somebody needs, even though we know that there are really effective treatments that we can provide. And so there are a couple of approaches um, that we can recommend for helping with um, the referral process and helping families kind of think about whether pursuing therapy might be right for them. So first, it's really helpful when doctors talk about the benefits of working with a psychologist right alongside all of the other treatment options they might discuss early on in the treatment relationship. So when they discuss the pros and cons of medication and other procedures, they could also discuss the pros and cons of therapy. And some physicians are able to do that. The psychogastro community, which is small but growing, is working to help physicians learn how to talk about it and actually give them the tools to really explain therapy and the the costs and benefits of, of this kind of approach. We also sometimes use different words to describe the services we deliver just to kind of pull away all the connotations of what psychotherapy is or, or you know, that kind of idea. So terms like gut-brain therapy might be used or teaching coping strategies, um, helping with relaxation techniques or stress management. Those are some other ways that we might describe what we might be doing together. So we can describe more of what we're doing rather than putting a label on it. Um, And then more and more medical teams are including psychologists as a routine part of treatment. And I think that really helps patients have a chance to meet with someone like a psychologist without necessarily feeling labeled as crazy or emotionally unstable or anything like that. It's really a normal part of their treatment, you know, with that program. Um, And then the other really important thing that I would want to communicate to families is that psychologists have extremely strict privacy and confidentiality guidelines that we have to follow. So a psychologist would never uh, tell anybody that they're even treating someone, let alone details about their life or their experience, without really explicitly written permission from the family to release that information. So even then, we only share what's absolutely necessary to share and only if the family wants us to. Um, so nobody has to know that you're even working with a psychologist if you don't want to. So hopefully that maybe helps people be a little more open to the idea of it. Absolutely. That sounds very effective. Uh, a wonderful way to do it. it. It removes the sort of the hesitation and even the fear factor of entering into uh, the process of, you know, of the, of the psychology. So 
um, that's a wonderful, that's wonderful to hear. And it's a wonderful development that we're seeing <clears throat> and that you're a fantastic part of. There have been studies released stating that patients with IBS and other GI disorders have higher rates of anxiety and depression than the general population. I can see how one would argue that the symptoms could potentially cause the anxiety or conversely how the stress can cause the GI symptoms. Do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, research does show that people with digestive conditions are at risk for anxiety and depression. Um, this is also true with many chronic conditions. So not just GI conditions, but um, if we're thinking about GI conditions, it's definitely a chicken or the egg question. And it brings us back to the gut-brain axis, so that loop between the brain and the digestive system that's sort of connected through the nervous system. So if you imagine that, it's really kind of a cycle. Um, and so our digestive health affects our cognitive and emotional health, and vice versa. Our emotional health affects our physical health. So my feeling is that regardless of the cause, we know that if we can interrupt that cycle, um, if something's not going right, we can reprogram it. And instead establish a healthier mind-body connection. And we know that that makes people feel better. So we can learn approaches to ease anxiety and stress, um, relax the body, eat nutritious foods, stay hydrated, get regular sleep and exercise. So it's all of those different things together really do improve our mood and overall mental state as well as our physical health. So it takes hard work to kind of make these changes. But in the end, it's a win-win where digestively someone will probably feel better and mentally, emotionally, they're going to feel better too. You've given us a wonderful explanation um, about this, but do you have any other thoughts um, or information you'd like to tell us about what a treatment course for a patient with the, a GI issue looks like and how long it, you expect it to last? Um, any other details? Yeah, yeah. The stereotype of therapy is, I think, kind of to lay on a couch and talk about your childhood or your parents or something for every hour for like the rest of your life, every single week. Um, and this is not at all how modern therapy works most of the time. Research has really taught us that by helping patients learn healthy coping strategies, many people can reduce and eventually discontinue therapy and continue to make improvements with their own new skills on their own independently. And so this does depend a little bit on the training orientation of the psychologist or therapist. Um, but the approaches we know are most effective for GI issues are some that I've already talked about. So cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. Um, and, you know, hypnotherapy we talked a little bit about as well, which is a growing area that's still kind of being a little bit you know, we, we have a lot to still understand about how that works. There's also exposure therapy for someone that has a lot of avoidance around things they're scared of and mindfulness and other types of relaxation strategies to help kind of ease people when they're feeling really stressed. So all of those approaches are pretty well supported out there in research. And most of those types of therapy take somewhere between six to 12 sessions and depending on the frequency of appointments and how complicated the situation is, it's probably realistic to expect therapy to take three to six months for a full course of treatment. Um, and of course, for some people who find it to be a much harder process to make progress, um, especially if they've been struggling a really long time or who have a lot of complicating factors in their life, they might continue therapy for several months, um, even into a year or two, but it's not the norm. So therapy might not be fast acting like taking a pill, but it's not something 
to be expected for the rest of your life. Um, and the benefits are usually much longer lasting than any kind of pharmaceutical approach and pretty much doesn't have any side effects. The main drawback is that it does take hard work um, and it does take a, a significant time commitment. So usually an hour once a week for several months. What is the age, at what age is it benefit, is it beneficial to start therapy? You know, like what is too young? Well, you know, younger children are absolutely still great candidates for psychotherapy um, and behavioral therapy. It just involves the parents much more than the child. So I, you know, there are psychologists who work with parents of infants and we're not, you know, sitting down the infant and teaching them how to relax themselves or how to change their thinking. We, we obviously take into account the development of the child. So the younger the child, the more important it is to involve the parents. And what we would do is teach the parents how to support and guide their child if they're showing, you know, distress in a certain way. So a lot of the time it involves um, teaching parents behavioral approaches or ways that they can help their child calm down when they're getting upset and recognize kind of the pattern of what's triggering them if they're getting scared or angry um, or acting out and, and kind of helping the parent shape the, their child's environment in a way that's therapeutic for them. So a lot of the work when they're little is more of a teaching kind of experience um, and the child it might be involved so that the psychologist understands what's going on, but really the hard work is more in the hands of the parents. And then as kids get older, it really depends on their own developmental level and the way they work. You know, I've met four and five-year-olds who are really good at explaining how they're feeling and what makes them feel that way. And so for kids that young, sometimes we are able to really start exploring you know, more of these complicated cognitive behavioral concepts. But for many other kids, you know, they might even be teenagers and still not really be able to absorb certain approaches. And that's okay. We tailor it to that person and what is right for them. And fortunately for children, as long as we have supportive parents in the picture, then the parents can really be a huge asset to um, making that progress in therapy. That's great. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Coburn, how does the role of a multidisciplinary clinic or a collaborative approach play into psychogastroenterology? What are the benefits of uh, working with other physicians and specialists? A multidisciplinary clinic is such a gift and it's hard to achieve for many logistical reasons, but it's unique because it gives patients and the treatment team an opportunity to come together sometimes literally in the same building to really focus on the patient situation from many different angles. And it's great to, from my perspective, to be able to literally pop over into the next room and ask our gastroenterologist about something like a possible source of a stomach ache, which maybe helps us think more about whether physical symptoms could be triggered or perpetuated by psychological factors or environmental factors or something medical. Um, and then at the same, on the same day, I could go and chat with our education specialist and our dietitian and figure out whether there might be problems with their current diet um, or if we're having trouble getting them the school accommodations that they need. So we can really achieve a lot in a short amount of time by having that multidisciplinary team available all at the same time. 
Um, and so something our program does in our celiac disease program is to encourage every family to seek a brief consultation from a psychologist on our team so that we can make it clear that it's common to struggle with a new diagnosis and the management of the gluten-free diet. Um, so kind of going back to trying to remove the stigma, we're doing this by trying to just encourage everyone to have a chance to chat about what it's been like for them. And this kind of environment really allows people to feel comfortable with the idea of psychology as just a normal part of taking care of your health. Um, doesn't make people feel maybe labeled like they're crazy or like something's all in their head. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think one of the big benefits of being part of this team too, is that oftentimes a patient will share something with me or with somebody else that they maybe didn't have a chance to talk about or didn't feel comfortable sharing with somebody else, but might be really relevant for their treatment. So for instance, there've been times where um, in our clinic, sometimes a patient might admit to eating their friend's gluten-containing goldfish crackers at school. And that might be able to explain some ongoing physical symptoms that we didn't understand before. So it really helps us get a bigger picture of what their entire kind of medical and psychosocial experience is at that time. Dr. Coverin, that's just amazing. And you've explained so well the critical importance of psychological management, really, by uh, by the psychologist and by the patient and the patient's family um, for children and adults with celiac disease and chronic other conditions and diseases. So how does a parent or how does a person find a pediatric psychologist or even a psychologist who specializes in celiac or other GI issues and who's prepared to understand uh, the entire picture of what that person is experiencing? and to help effectively with, with those issues. Yeah, finding a psychologist or a therapist who's right for you is crucial. So most health psychologists, so people who kind of understand not only how to provide psychotherapy and understand that, but also approach it from that health perspective, um, a lot of the time they're found in medical centers, so hospitals and clinics, but there are plenty out in the community as well. And it's just a matter of finding them. So um, there are a few great websites where you can look to find people. Psychology Today has a good search engine. And no, this isn't a formal endorsement. But they have a good search engine so that you can find therapists. Um, and you can actually filter by age group, problem, and even insurance type. Um, but I would definitely say verify when you contact that therapist that that information is correct and that it's an appropriate kind of person for you. And for GI conditions, I, I would definitely recommend looking for psychologists. Um, and so usually psychologists are, are doctoral level, so a PhD or a PsyD, who specialize in chronic illness or pain. You don't necessarily need someone with like specialization in gut-brain therapy. And since that's such a new area, you're, it's going to be a little tough to find someone with that expertise. But it's really often not necessary. Um, so somebody who just understands and appreciates some of the burden that comes along with chronic illness um, or pain will be open to learning about your specific situation and, and helping you kind of tailor your treatment as you need it. And in particular, look for people who are trained in the therapeutic approaches I talked about today, CBT, mindfulness, um, hypnotherapy, and 
So you can actually just go to psychologytoday.com and click on find a therapist and there's a search engine there. So that's one place to go. But you really also can just call or go onto your insurance company's website and get a list of um, providers who are who take who work with your insurance. Um, it's kind of hard to get in sometimes with people who take insurance. So the thing to keep in mind is that many psychologists in private practices also will have some kind of payment arrangement, even if they don't work it with insurance. So they might be able to offer you an affordable rate that, that makes it possible to work with them. Um, so psychogastroenterology is a, like I said, it's a pretty tiny field, but it is growing quickly. So um, the Rome Foundation is kind of leading the way with this, with psychogastroenterology. And there's a directory that they've just kind of started to roll out where you can find medical and psychological providers. And so their website is romegipsych.org. How do you spell um, Rome? Rome, R-O-M-E, so like the city of Rome. And they focus a lot on this gut-brain connection and have people who are really um, leaders in this growing field who really started it and are, are building a big community with the psychological field as well as gastroenterology and really bringing everybody together. Um, so I have to say with the, the directory, it's really new and fledgling. And so I just w actually added myself to the directory, even though I've been part of that psychogastroenterology group for a little while. Um, so I think a lot of providers like me have not yet put themselves in there, might not even know it exists. So definitely there's no comprehensive list right there yet, but I would stay tuned and peek in on it um, and look for that directory just to keep an eye open because you might find more and more people in your area who are specifically trained in psychogastro type things. And then there are some educational resources out there too for psychologists. So um, our program has a continuing education program for psychologists um, and other providers who work with people who have celiac disease so that they can understand a little bit more about the psychological and psychosocial factors that are connected to celiac disease. So we have um, a free training that anyone can go on and get resources uh, about this topic. And that's at celiacpsychce.org. Um, CE stands for continuing education. So, you know, there, and I think there are more and more resources like that that are growing in all kinds of different chronic conditions. So um, there are ways, if you find a good therapist who you connect with, there are ways to help them gain even more expertise in that area just by working with you and maybe reaching out for some more resources. Uh, Dr. Coburn, how do you spell that celiac psych, C-E? Yeah, so it is C-E-L-I-A-C-P-S-Y-C-H-C-E.org. And we'll right. link to both of these resources um, and Psychology Today on the show notes. So you'll be able to find it right from the podcast page. Well, Dr. Coburn, I want to thank you so much for all of this great information. You've definitely given us and all of our listeners a lot to think about in terms of treating GI disorders. But we are all out of time for today. I hope that everyone enjoyed today's podcast, and we will talk to you again next time. Thanks so much for having me. Bye. Thank <laughs> you.